Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Maya Forstetter, a researcher, writer, and advisor working on business and sustainable development. In 2019, she lost her job after tweeting and writing about sex and gender. She is the claimant in a landmark test case on whether the protected characteristic of belief in the Equality Act covers gender-critical beliefs. She writes about single-sex services at A Question of Consent, and you can watch her speech at the 2020 Women's Place UK Conference. I welcome Maya Forstetter to Savage Minds. I've been following your case since 2019. My jaw has been in full drop mode since then, because as I just read out in the introduction, you have been targeted in what many people would call institutional capture of ideology. And I would like if you could, because our audience comes from both in the UK and outside the UK, if you could recap what has happened to you within your work at the Center for Global Development. Sure. Um, so I worked as a researcher, a visiting fellow at the Center for Global Development, which is an international development think tank with headquarters in Washington, D.C., but I was based in the European office, which was which is in London. Uh, and I was working on um, international tax policy and uh, transparency. Not I wasn't working on sex and gender, but there were people in the organization working on uh, what they call gender, but really it means sex in you know in international development. The uh, ability to measure the differences in you know life and economic outcomes between men and women, and and you know issues like. Uh, uh, maternal mortality and girls leaving school early all of that's about about sex um, but I wasn't working on on sex and gender but as a um, citizen in the UK as a mum I and as a feminist um, I had sort of started paying attention to this debate about uh, sex and gender and particularly the UK government's proposal in 2017 to uh, change the law on how people can change their legal sex, to change it from something that was a medical process with uh, a degree of gatekeeping to self-ID. Um, and that had kind of opened Pandora's box of, of this discussion. And so I started paying attention to that in in 2017 just following it on twitter um wondering why the debate was quite so heated and quite so difficult um also following it on on mum's net um and um because i worked at think tank i thought I was in an institution that values debate, disagreement, you know, cordial disagreement and discussion of controversial issues uh, and that supports its staff and associates to do that. Um, and so I felt like I was in a place where I ought to be able to discuss this. It's a policy issue. Um, it's not part of my work, but I wasn't 
um, yeah, I was talk mainly talking about it on Twitter, which is my personal Twitter account, um, but also, you know, had some discussions with uh, colleagues in London about the government's self-ID proposal. Uh, and quite soon after I started tweeting about it, uh, there were concerns raised in Washington. So by staff in Washington who I didn't work with, didn't really know, um, but who'd read my tweets and who uh, were concerned about them and sort of raised concerns that this was transphobia. And the organization overreacted, I think. Um, they, you know, it wasn't an organization, that, it's not a Stonewall champion. It didn't have strong uh, internal messaging or external messaging about gender ideology, but in the face of um, quite mild offence taking by a couple of members of staff in Washington DC, they they panicked and they they didn't know how to deal with the issue, um, and they they wanted me to not to talk about it, um, and sort of over six months. Uh, we, we went through a process where, you know, I was, I was quite willing to say, this isn't my job. I want to be able to talk about this in public as an individual, but I can separate it from my, from my work. Although obviously, you know, my name is, my name is my name. Um, but in the end, when there came a point where my contract was up and um, we had a, understanding and an expectation that I would get another contract because I'd been working on a project where I'd been raising funds for the project and the idea was you know once as an organization we had the funds to to do the work um, which had been raised you know with my CV on the project documentation and you know my inputs and ideas into writing the proposal that I would then get a contract to, to do the work um, and at the point where there was that kind of break in, in the contractual relationship, they said no. Um, and so I tweeted about that. Um, I, I, I had written something about sex and gender and international development, and it was International Women's Day. So I published that in um, March 2019. And I, as part of that, I just tweeted that I'd lost my job, thinking that I didn't have any employment rights because I wasn't a full-time tenured employee. I was, you know, part of the intellectual gig economy. Um, but I, you know, had an email address, had business cards, was part of a team. Uh, and when I tweeted that I'd lost my job, uh, this sort of alerted um, a group of feminist lawyers who had already been thinking about the idea of taking a belief discrimination case and I became the test case for that. It's interesting that you mentioned the intellectual gig economy because a lot of the ramping up of these charges against people in academia or threats made to people in academia including researchers it's been happening in tandem with the increase of gig economy workers within the university structure, both within the UK and elsewhere, I've noticed. I, I can't help but wonder if this is part of the pressure and these institutions 
are responding to the most bizarre of pressures because who would have thought that social media would be a place that institutions kowtow to? Yes, I, I think that's right. And I think, you know, there's a very strong division between you know, people with jobs and people without jobs, as in, you know, um, permanent positions and people with people who are paid particularly to do feminism but in general paid to do human rights paid to do equality um i think have turned inwards to protecting their their job security and their career um and so the debate on sex and gender has been this this battle between the the insiders and and the outsiders um and i think the fear of becoming an outsider is so great that people will accept almost anything that they don't believe in order to keep their jobs in a piece i wrote recently i cited upton sinclair yes who in fact said just this that basically that when people's livelihood depends upon disseminating something that is not true, you have a conflict of interest. I'm not paraphrasing. I know the quote. Yeah, it's, it's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. And it's fascinating because I would not be able to be speaking to you had I not stepped out of academia several years ago. And this is the enormity of the situation where when... I got into this, I got into this from two veins simultaneously, both the, huh? <laughs> like, that's not scientifically coherent. Yeah. And then the other side of that, huh, was also, wait a sec, I shouldn't be forced to parrot an ideological belief, what I deem to be, in fact, a religious belief, because it's interesting that your case was couched in the right to conscience, I believe, of thought. Now, what you are stating, what I state all the time, that humans are sexually dimorphic, let's just begin there. This isn't, and it wouldn't be in any hemisphere of this planet, be viewed as a religious belief. I mean, these are scientific truths. Now, how is it that your legal team decided to approach it like this? Because this is the irony. I, I wrote this on Twitter in relationship to your case recently. Once upon a time, scientists, like I'm thinking Galileo, Copernicus, had to fight the church to have what is clearly yeah. <laughs> true validated in terms of we won't kill you for saying it, we won't kill you for writing that on parchment paper. And then today, your case had a paradoxical twist to it, if I'm you can correct me on this, that in a way this had to be couched legally, I'm saying, not in reality, but legally as a type of religious belief in order to have any kind of footing on par with people who are actually what I call flat earthers, who would like to pretend that sex isn't real, et cetera, et cetera. Can you tease that out? Because I might've made a few mistakes here. It's, you're, you're sort of quite right. Um, so, in UK law, this is taken under the Equality Act, so it's anti-discrimination law, um, which was brought together in 2010 into a single big law where previously we had sex discrimination, race discrimination, disability discrimination, and it was brought together under one framework. So you have nine protected characteristics, which are 
race, age, disability, sexual orientation, uh, gender reassignment, and so on. Um, and there is a characteristic in there called religion or belief. And that means that you shouldn't be discriminated for being a member of a religion or having a religious belief or not being a member of any particular religion. Um, and the, the way it's set out, uh, you, they try to, um, in the case law, they have to define what a non-religious belief is because a religious belief, you don't have to look at the content of someone's religious belief to decide if it's valid. If somebody says they're Catholic or Jew or Muslim, um, that's a sort of brand name belief. And you can say, okay, that's your belief. You shouldn't be discriminated against because of having it or not having it. Um, and it doesn't mean that everything that you do in the workplace that's, that's um, driven by or driven by your religion must be tolerated or justified. You know, there are things that um, you don't bring into the workplace. But on the other hand, there are things that you do need to accommodate in terms of uh, food food rules or you know what days people worship and what days they take off for a religious holiday and so on but also their ability to talk about what their belief is in an appropriate setting um you know and that can include their belief on abortion um on uh you know, marriage on on all kinds of ethical issues that religion talks about and lack of religion and so uh, the definition of a philosophical belief in order to uh, um, fulfill the, the criteria are basically that it looks a bit like a religion in that it's um, something serious that people um, genuinely believe that has an important impact on their life. So it's, it doesn't mean that it can't be based on science but it has to be something that um, impacts someone's life. So I, I mean, it hasn't been tested, but my guess is a belief in string theory probably doesn't count because string theory doesn't um, change how you live your life. Uh, so, but it's not that it has to be, um, you know, not based on science. Uh, and then there's this, fifth criteria which is uh, the belief has to be not inconsistent with other people's human rights and therefore worthy of respect in a democratic society and basically that criteria is there to rule out protection for beliefs that you know that fundamentally undermine other people's human rights and so the kinds of beliefs that have failed on that have been uh, Holocaust denial and wanting to overthrow the government by violent revolution. Uh, so that test is supposed to be quite low. It's just saying you have a belief, that belief is important to you, you shouldn't be discriminated against for having that belief. So that's that's what we took to be tested in in the employment tribunal, whether the gender critical belief that sex is real, immutable uh, and important counts 
as a philosophical belief. And we also took the contrary uh, argument, which is there is another set of beliefs, gender ideology, that gender is what counts. And I don't share that belief. I'm an atheist in relation to that belief. And I should also have protection as somebody who doesn't share that belief. So we've, so we've taken both of those arguments in parallel. Um, and they both failed in the, in the preliminary hearing, which was uh, November 2019. And they've both been taken to this appeal. Um, so that's sort of the legal side of why it's couched in belief. But I think it has really interesting and useful uh, implications for how we think about how we solve this issue if we think about it in terms of belief and in terms of what, what, how we deal with people with different beliefs in a plural secular society where people can live and work along, alongside each other having quite different beliefs and tolerate each other. And I think that framework is, you know, one is, is hugely important beyond this issue of sex and gender, and two uh, can help us solve why this issue is so toxic. So hopefully, you know, my case will bring justice for me because I did lose a job which I loved and lost my livelihood, protect other gender critical people in the workplace who we know are um, you know, frightened of speaking out in their thousands, but also maybe create this framework where we can think about how do, you know, how do we live together um, where we disagree. You'll figure that that would have been a challenge for the 21st century. Yeah, and, and that we would forget, you know, it's it's like we've got a new a new package on this um, urge towards authoritarianism, but you know, it's only a new a new skin on it. Underneath it, it's the same um, the same challenges that we've seen over and over again. And yeah, go figure. We're still sitting here going. Hey, do we let people compel other people to say things they don't believe? Well, your your words in comparison to the Holocaust ring something true for me, in the sense of when I left academia, one of the first people I contacted was Norman Finkelstein, who had been run through the ringer, and really terribly so, because of his work on the Holocaust industry. Yeah, and he is the child of Holocaust survivors. He's one of the most important scholars on this subject and has been basically blacklisted from academia. And his work is superior to most academics in the field within university walls today. That goes without saying. And I'm also thinking of the first guest on our show, Noam Chomsky, who wrote about the Ferrisson affair, where Robert Ferrisson, who's a Holocaust denier in France, wrote a book. Chomsky agreed to write the preface to the book entitled Some Elementary Comments on the Rights of Freedom of Expression. And it was the introduction to Ferrisson's book where he defended his right to express his ideas. Now, when you say your views or my views might be likened to that, I would say, well, no, because it's not the same as saying, let's go and invade the Capitol building in DC, for instance. These are views that are substantiated even within science. So 
how did it get to such a point within CGD that you were called up for social media posts? I mean, there's many questions there as well. Where does the private and public life begin and end? Why are employers putting their nose into your tweets? I mean, seriously, there are so many other places that they could be putting their nose. <laughs> if you catch my drift, I mean, this is, this is the insanity of it. And I'm going to segue to the recent decision by Basecamp. I don't know if you followed this last week. Basecamp has basically paid off employees who can't deal with their new policy. Here's the new policy. I'm just going to read you a few blips from it. They made a, a blog post, a sort of mini manifesto. No more societal and political discussions on our company base camp count. Today's social and political waters are especially choppy. Sensitivities are at 11 and every discussion remotely related to politics, advocacy, or society at large quickly spins away from pleasant. You shouldn't have to wonder if staying out of it means you're complicit or wading into it means you're a target. These are difficult enough waters to navigate in life, but significantly not so at work. Their second point, no more paternalistic benefits. For years, we've offered a fitness benefit, a wellness allowance, a farmer's market share, continuing education allowances. They felt good at the time, but we've had a change of heart. It's none of our business what you do outside of work, and it's not Basecamp's place to encourage certain behaviors, regardless of good intention. And so I'm just giving you, it's a much longer oh. blog post, but it really heartened me to see that there's a company that's realizing the deficits. So what drove your former employer to meddle into your social media and to even feel that they had to respond to any complaints about you from within or without the organization? I mean, I think, and this is, you know, not just my organization, but I've seen this now, obviously, since I launched my case, I've heard from lots of people who've been through very similar things in other organizations. Um, and I think it's fear and it's the way that transphobia has been defined and language has been, uh, you know, language is continually being redefined and being made dangerous that people, when somebody says that's transphobic, the people in authority are not willing or able to look at it in a um, rational way and say, no, it isn't. Because clearly there is language that is transphobic, you know, that if you are um, inciting violence towards transgender people or transsexual people or if you are um uh you know inappropriately lambasting or making fun of people and I don't think that means that you should never be able to make fun of any group in you know in comedy or in art but you know in the workplace there's a degree of constraint of politeness about what you say about about people in different groups, which, you know, there isn't absolute freedom of speech in the workplace, but there is a line between, you know, what is acceptable and what isn't. But in order to draw that line, you are wading into dangerous waters and people see that and either 
either they haven't thought about the topic at all or haven't thought about it very much. They see that it's toxic and they just don't want to go there. And I think they think, you know, could you please just shut up about this issue? What, you know, as the, the kind of first bit of that base camp article said, you know, could we just not talk about this? And that might be viable in a technology company, although I don't think it really is, but it's not viable in a think tank where we talk about politics and government policy all the time. And this was a this was a government consultation um, and where there are people working on sex, sex and gender. Um, so I think partly what drives it is just it, the whole area has been made so toxic that people who are normally rational about things and approach them with good faith and understand pluralism see that it's personally dangerous for them to step in and so the easiest thing to do is to get rid of the the person who's who's making a noise um and so uh so sort of alongside my uh employment case and what happened to me at work was I was also or after I'd launched the case so I'd already become somewhat of a public face of this although not as much as I would once JK Rowling tweeted about it but you know that I was already had already been in the newspapers um a non-binary male person uh in Dundee so the other side of the country for me I've never met this person uh they are a scout leader and I'm also a scout leader. And I had written something about the scouts, which in the UK is a um, co-ed organization. There are boys and girls in it and there have been for a long time, but they had adopted a transgender policy which undermined safeguarding. So, you know, the idea that um, if a male child identifies as a girl, you should, put that child in a girl's to share the tent with girls and share showers and so on and not tell the parents that that's what you're doing um and equally that if a child tells a scout leader that they are transgender that the scouts shouldn't tell the parents if the child don't want the parents to know the scouts should transition them within scouts and not necessarily tell the parents that this is what they're doing so that you know this policy risks other children's safety and and the safety of children who identify as, as transgender um, and i had written about that and got into a very short twitter uh discussion with this transgender adult uh in scotland and had misgendered them by calling them he. Uh, and this person looks like a man, has a beard, looks like any other man. Um, and they had complained to scouts. They put in an official complaint to scouts about me. This is the only official complaint that there has been about me. There weren't any official complaints at work. There were only people um, sort of raising concerns, but it didn't 
come to the level of being an official complaint. But the way that scouts responded to this complaint was they also um, overreacted, kind of threw their hands up, uh, ended up in an investigation that went on for 18 months and in which the person who was asked to investigate um, then also ended up with a complaint against her by this person, um, you know, because she'd stepped in and um, had been asked to then say, is this transphobic or not? And because this person was not happy with the way that she had um, approached it, she then faced a disciplinary investigation. So, you know, organisations have these systems for dealing with harassment and bullying that then sort of weaponized by uh, external or internal offense taking. And these uh, internal processes are just in incredibly vulnerable to this. They, they have no way of saying, no, that's vexatious, or, you know, no, that's trivial. Uh, you can have different, you, you can have robust debate, you can have different beliefs from people and you are an adult, uh, you, you need to deal with that. Um, and, so they, and so they overact and they try and get rid of the problem, which is usually a woman. Um, and as you say, is often somebody on a um, temporary contract or a freelance contract, you know, they get rid of the person who has le least power in the, um, in the organization. Um, and that's certainly what I've seen, you know, both in my experience and with others that I've talked to. The other day I interviewed a brilliant uh, engineer of all things internet, all things social media, Saif Savage out of the US and Mexico. And I asked her a lot about the way that social media has been used to foment certain ideas that even weren't so common before suddenly, right? And between the bots and the trolls, we see that there's a huge push of gender ideology within social media. Now, as it stands at this moment that you and I are speaking, 60% of Twitter feed is bot generated. This is what the latest studies show. So I do worry about not only the vexatiousness of these challenges, even lawsuits with certain people who are prone to golfing, they take suits up against people who, this one individual I'm speaking of, who goes after one person after another after another. Meanwhile, you're saying sex is dimorphic, mm -hmm. that humans can't change sex. I believe you were called out for retweeting something that J.K. Rowling had tweeted. And all of these issues about what we say, what we retweet, even liking, like I like things I dislike just to keep them under my radar, but whatever. All of this somehow becomes part of this greater social media Rorschach purity test. <laughs> Is she going to pass our Rorschach purity test? Because she liked this. Like I've had tweets over the years saying, but you retweeted this, you're a turf. You retweeted that and you like that. You wanna kill trans people. But let's get back to the bare bones here. We're talking about scientific truths where this lobby is saying that sex doesn't work, but not paradoxically, not coincidentally. It's mostly men, no matter how they identify, 
penis havers who are making the complaints about, ironically, the non-penis havers. And I find this very interesting from a sociological perspective that employers have not picked up on this. Yes, Graham Linehan has been targeted, a few other men, but overwhelmingly, it's women. And then you go back to the statistics on how women are employed and, and salary disparities, even those who have access to full-time contracts versus those who do not. For instance, I myself went freelance after I had children. It was coincidental, but I might have had to do it if it hadn't been coincidental in order to child raise and so forth. So you have all these sociological factors that figure into the fact that we might be as a group the most disposable to appease the group that's making complaints and emails about a tweet you wrote. Yes, I think I think that's exactly right. And I think um, it, it was even something that we were talking about at CGD before all this this happened, you know, because it's it was an organization that um, is founded by a woman, but more men in senior positions, you know, it was thinking about about gender in the workplace, you know, in terms of men and women, the sexes. Um, and I think one of the issues is that in order to, um, in order to uh, advance in the, you know, in a think tank job or a political job or academic job, where it is about having opinions, you you, you know, you have to have opinions which differ from other people. There's no point just saying the same thing. But the tolerance for women and particularly young women to be controversial is much less than the tolerance of men to be controversial. And so um, women are, you know, punished for uh, having difficult opinions for, you know, I've, you know, I've been called aggressive uh, in a national newspaper and I'm not aggressive at all. Whereas, um, you know, men can have all kinds of uh, opinions that are robustly disagreeable and that's much more acceptable, you know, and, and people know this, people can talk about this, you know, that's none of that's new. But when you change the pronouns on it, suddenly people get confused and they can't see, as you say, that it, this is mainly women being targeted. And it's I mean, it will, I think will go after anybody, but particularly women in um, vulnerable employment and women tend to find themselves in more vulnerable employment. Women have been caught up in the crossfire of science and religion in a strange sense. And I'm calling gender ideology a religion because it has all the hallmarks of a religion, if not a cult. I would even take it as far as to say a cult because I think the capture goes beyond anything that most religions contemporarily speaking advocate. For instance, again, as I mentioned before the show, I moved from Canada to the deep South in the US at a very young age. And that was where I got my first taste of people who have very conservative views that are steeped in religious orthodoxy. But as far as it went in the heartland of Mississippi was a knock on your door on Sundays if they saw a car in the garage or in the driveway and people would say, you know, do you want to come to church with us? It, it, it didn't invoke any kind of protest that you're going to be burned and go to hell. 
Paradoxically, the woke crowd on the gender ideology side of this equation does manifest a purity that's taking aim at women's livelihoods, people's housing. If you recall the jam jars incident several years ago, the man who helped host the event, who organized it with the women had lost his housing over his involvement in that. And so I've talked to loads of people. I've talked to a teacher in Wales who's lost his employment over social media content that was not at all rude. It was just, again, nothing that would have been kicked out of A-level classrooms. You yeah, know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so when we're talking about the way that gender ideology has been captured, as many of our listeners may or may not know, so I'm going to recap a bit, but organizations in the UK like Stonewall, very specific transgender organizations in the UK like Mermaids, and many organizations within the UK, I'm still waiting to hear back from the National Union of Journalists, but the NUJ has been informed over the past many years to tell people like me how to write about a man in prison who wears a dress. Now, I, I posed them the question two weeks ago about where this drive came from, what organizations asked them to put out a four-page document to journalists like myself saying, you must do the following when you speak about trans people. So I can read an article about a woman who's raped another woman and think, huh, you need a penis to rape a person. Or I could read an article that gives emotional weight to a quote unquote woman who's just raped another woman. And that article doesn't pivot around the usual where the man was from, where the rape took place, or the alleged incidents of the rape, et cetera, et cetera. But it weighs on this word, transphobia, right? So we're seeing that even crimes against women are having a certain kind of sympathy with the person who's either accused or who is already proven to be guilty. And you're in a bit of that. You've lost your employment. You've been, even by omission, labeled a transphobe in the sense that this is unacceptable. How far did this go up the chain of command at your former workplace? Like, were you able to see documents in a FOI style, freedom of information request style, where you could see how far people were speaking about your quote unquote crime? So when you take a case, you, you get disclosures. So more than freedom of information, you know, I had to disclose, I gave in every document where I've ever written about this topic, um, including letters to my MP and everything with the scouts, which was unrelated to work. Um, and similarly, I got all of the internal documents from my workplace. Um, but that part of the case hasn't been heard yet. So this, this first part of the case was just, is this belief protected? And if I win at appeal, it will go back to the employment tribunal to ask what happened? How did how did I lose my job? You know, as you say, what what were the decision making points within the organization? Um, and so the case is against CGD Europe, CGD in the US and Masood Ahmed, who is the president of the organization. So it goes right up to the top. But the things that are in the disclosures, I can't talk about them until that bit of the case comes to comes to court. 
First of all, when this all went down, did you hear from colleagues in or outside of CGD in similar fields that came to you and said that they supported you or that they sympathized with you because they've had similar incidents? Yes. Yeah, so when it was sort of going down internally, you know, I wasn't a public figure in any way, but but colleagues were seeing what was happening. Um, colleagues that I spoke to said uh, they, they didn't understand it. You know, they hadn't been looking at the issues, but from what they could see, I was one making sense, even if even if they didn't completely agree with me. I think, you know, some some of them came from a more of a pragmatic, be kind, uh, um, sort of natural position, but also they hadn't really thought through what does this mean for women's sports? What does this mean for women's prisons? Because of the way that it's been, you know, the debate has been sort of kept in a bubble and made so dangerous. But at the same time, these are people, you know, these are researchers, empirical people, um, and they could see that one, what I was saying was making sense, and two, that it was not coming from uh, a place of bigotry and th that I'm a feminist. Um, so I, you know, so I mainly had sort of quiet support from colleagues, but nobody really willing to, you know, people are concentrating on their own work, their own lives. Um, they didn't see it as their issue, but they were sort of horrified. Uh, and then I've also had that reaction from some people outside in the sector. You know, I've had messages from you know, very senior professors saying, we think what you're doing is great, but we can't speak up. Um, but also a lot, of, a lot of silence. And the few people who within the sector um, who have bought into the ideology, who have said, you're a bigot, what you're saying is awful, but th those are in the minority. Um, and then there's a there's sort of a group of people who, when I ask them to talk about this, say things like, it's too hot, as in the weather, uh, or not on social media. There, there, there's always some, some reason why, you know, I'm washing my hair, why people can't talk about this, which is, which I think is fear. Um, and then there's people who say, is this really important? You know, is this the hill that you want to die on? Why, do, why does this matter? Um, and I think it matters, I mean, I think it matters intensely uh, for, beca because of the way it affects vulnerable women, um, fairness in women's sports, and the ability to talk about material reality. But I think it also matters as a kind of canary in the coal mine issue for, uh, the integrity of institutions and I don't know how much people in my sector have seen that through this through the process of, of me going through this and partly because of lockdown you know everyone's isolated I've been sent to Coventry I've been cancelled um you know I don't bump into people and um I don't challenge people to uh, say what they think because um, it's too painful. So 
you know, I've had all of this support, you know, general support, uh, you know, support from lots of angry feminists, lots of free speech, um, people concerned with free speech, lots of people across all different kinds of sectors, but probably the most common response within people within my professional networks and, and the sector I was working in has been, has been silence. And, and to the point where things like, you know, you have specialist, you know, websites, media for charities for international development. Um, and you would have thought they would comment on the fact that this case is going on, whatever, you know, whatever you think of it, whether you think CGD is in the right or I'm in the right, um, you would, you would report on it. And there's been just a sort of news, the closer you get to the institutions, the more there is a news blackout because it's so dangerous to talk about <laughs> because I'm demanding that people talk about this rationally and talking about this rationally is the offense. Well, when you went to the employment tribunal, the judge, <laughs> this is, I swear this made my head explode. The judge argued that there's nothing stopping you from <laughs> campaigning against proposals to keep people from changing their legal sex through self ID, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, <laughs> that we should use terms such as woman assigned male at birth and woman assigned female at birth instead of male and female. My head exploded. Well, that you should have, in the tribunal itself, there was a bit where, which is probably where I should have known that I'd lost, where the judge started um, extemporizing and said, well, surely you can talk about spaces that are appropriate for women with penises and women without penises that didn't make it into the judgment but that was that was said in court in the tribunal is this judge touching your appeal is there a new judge in the appeal it's a it's a new judge thank goodness let's hope someone who's read biology books um i tell you when i read this the first thing this is when i I tilt over to, okay, this is much more, not even a free speech issue. For me, it's a sanity issue. When I read crap like this, I go ballistic. On, in what world should judges or anyone be telling us how to speak? First of all, midwives, I've interviewed them. Doctors, I've interviewed them. I have not yet found one who says that they assigned sex. This is an invention. This is as much an invention as last year's documentary on Netflix about the flat earthers that believe that the world is flat and covered in a plexiglass globe as if it were like a donut cover in a pastry shop. It's that level of insane. And I get angry when I read this because all I can think is who's paid off the judge. I'm sorry to say, but I can't think that a rational person got to a judgeship saying nonsense like this. And then I wonder what the burden of responsibility for a judge to use terms like women assigned male at birth is. And, and well, the thing is, the judges are trained by gendered intelligence, which is an one of or, <laughs> yes, but an organization that, that's promoting this. And the judges are guided by this thing called the Equal Treatment Bench Book, which is um, a big volume of guidance to judges on how they make their courts uh, accessible and it, you know it's a good thing it about uh, disability race 
uh, sex, all of the protected characteristics and kind of thinking through uh, what would be the, the um, barriers to access to justice for different kinds of people. And it has a, obviously a chapter on uh, transgender, which tells the judges to use this language and tells them that they must um, respect people's pronouns include and, and that means they also uh, call on witnesses and other parties in in the uh, in court cases to use people's preferred pronouns so you know there was this case of Maria McLachlan who uh, was attacked at a uh, gender critical uh, it wasn't even a protest it was sort of meeting up before a meeting uh, at speaker's corner and was attacked by a um, trans trans activist male who identified as as a woman but in Maria's lived experience as they say she was being attacked by someone she perceived to be a tall young man um, but when she had to give evidence about about being assaulted she was told by the judge that she had to call this person she and we haven't got any similarly um, detailed accounts but at least in terms of what makes the papers they talk about um, you know rapists as she the, there was a story just this week about woman exposes herself in car park or something you know which was not a woman and presumably the victims in those cases are being told by the judges in the same way that Maria McLachlan was that they have to say she um, and similarly there was a case recently uh, an employment discrimination case of a non-binary person who uh, took Jaguar Land Rover, the big car company, to, to court for, for discrimination. And the whole the 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 person worked there for 20 years, and then there's the whole period where they um they worked there as a man and then they uh identified as non-binary uh but were still using their original name and in their meetings and emails and so on would have been referred to as he at the time but the judgment changed everything to she it, you know the judgment was written with the historic it wasn't even respecting someone's current preferred pronouns it rewrote history so that this person was written as she even in the time when they would have been called he so judges are doing that in their own practice and they're justifying to themselves that that's the right thing to do and I think you know I think there's this big cognitive dissonance that judges think they're good people they're learned people they're people with integrity so in that case they would have stood up against the equal treatment bench book if it was wrong but they haven't and so because they haven't they then look at me and say well why are you um objecting against having to use this language and I, and I had said to it I had said in my workplace that I would use preferred pronouns that I there were there were no trans people in my workplace but um I wasn't out to 
offend or make anyone feel uncomfortable if I met them at a conference or if I did have a transgender um, colleague, but I wanted to be able to talk about sex clearly um, as a policy issue. And that also means you have to use examples. You know, you have to talk about crime, you have to talk about sport, you have to talk about uh, safeguarding. And if you do that in the language that the judge asked, you know, women, women assigned male at birth or whatever, nobody understands what you're talking about. And if I can't talk about it in everyday language, what does that mean for, you know, the 20 year old receptionist at the gym or elderly woman receiving care, somebody with learning difficulties? You know, we, we need to be able to talk about this with ordinary common language. And that doesn't mean that you can't be polite to people. Um, you know, because the judges have this guidance, that's shaped what they think. And that's not the law, that's, that's Stonewall law. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Well, there's many things to be said here. This reminds me of the day I went to my daughter's school to pick her up in Islington, And when I picked her up, the teacher gave all the parents a leaflet. It was like half a page of a lawyer who was coming over to the school later that week to help parents who go to the job center do their CVs. And I thought, and I said this the next day after I read it, Mm. I told the teacher, I said, what is a private legal firm doing having capture within this school such that you're giving me a leaflet. Now I understand they're doing a pro bono mitzvah. They're doing a good work for the society. But my problem is how this got filtered through this school in Islington. And that was just a little tip of one part of of another iceberg, but they're similar in the sense that why is it that a judge is getting schooled by gender intelligence or documentation that gets filtered through the equal treatment manifesto that he or she reads through that has been influenced by gendered intelligence in the same way that the NUJ is telling me to call men women. Yeah. And then I will skip to this politesse that you mentioned that I used to participate in myself. And then I realized, wait, if I play to this nice politics, this is how we got here. I was around in the early 90s. And so what is this middle ground of being nice is a slippery slope that led us to saying, well, biological male, assigned at birth male, how many times can we make underscoring of something that need be said through one word, male? And I feel that by being nice, we're not being, A, we're not being nice. I think we're colluding in a social delusion on a massive level and individual in terms of, I have friends who identify as trans, Uh, because of lockdown have not seen them in fact because of life and kids and living in other countries have not seen them but the first time I see one I will have that discussion about how my mental health is as important as theirs and I will no longer be participating in this delusion because I think this is part of the problem where you've seen it on Twitter even amongst quote unquote feminists I don't know if they're feminists I'm saying quote unquote or people who are advocating in the name of feminism that we can 
speak reality, both about our biological reality, historical materialism as it pertains to the economic well-being of, of vagina havers, uterus havers, cervix havers, and that we're not decimated by language to such a degree that we can no longer say women. Because as you notice, it's not cancer research calling men prostates havers. So it's a very specific, it's, it's, it's speaking out of both sides of the mouth where these institutions claim that gender is real. And on the other hand, ironically, they're not calling the male gender <laughs> penis havers. So I think that there's a slippery slope that we, we have all had to grapple with both in our personal, even professional lives. I know that when I invite guests to the show, should they go? A lot of them want to hear what my podcast is like. Should they go and hear me saying he to refer to Bruce Jenner? They might be, as someone said on Twitter yesterday to me, um, that's where we disagree. She was polite about it, but she had been putting one of my pieces in a thread with another Egyptian-American journalist who has very vocally come out against women like us calling us TERFs. And she was trying to say that my piece was in line with Mona's uh, journalism, which it is actually, because a lot of women on the left who espouse gender ideology are in many ways leftists in every other strain, except when it comes to recognizing men as women. So this is a huge divide for those of us on the left who advocate for a material driven language and we abide by that because most people on the left, I didn't see Corbin out there saying, just identify as having a lovely council house and you're fine, or identify as being wealthy and you're fine. We see that language means everything except when it comes to women, then we can fudge on it. Yes, I think, I think that's right. And, and I mean, it was, it was interesting in the process of me losing my job, pronouns were not an issue. As I said, partly because there weren't any trans people at work and because I had said I would use pronouns at work. And that was a, um, you know, the, the judge, the judge said that I would misgender people and that was a core part of my belief. And when I'd said that I would use preferred pronouns, that was a sort of pragmatic thing that, you know, you accept that in the workplace there are, you know, you work with people you don't like, you don't necessarily say what you think about them. Um, you know, there are constraints, there are constraints about um, politeness in the workplace. And that seemed to me to be um, a reasonable line to draw. Uh, and, and also, as a person, my personality, I, I, you know, I just know I wouldn't be in a meeting, trying to antagonize people, because that's not what I do. Um, but other people might, and I, you know, I haven't said, this is what everybody has to do. Um, I had just said, you know, in this situation in, in my workplace, I had accepted that I would, you know, I would use preferred pronouns. And I think um, that there, there was a whole section in the in the cross-examination which talked about other situations. And I think, you know, other situations are different, you know, where you have a workplace that is involved in care of vulnerable people, where or where you have a workplace which is involved in 
different service users interacting with each other and staff that you know that and and that example of what pronouns you use in a courtroom those questions are quite different but because I worked in a office with adults um you know and not directly with service users that seemed to me to be you know I, I wasn't going to fight about that that wasn't where my fight was my fight was about whether I could say man woman male female mother father all of those words um but I do I, you know I'm not sort of saying this is the the right line to draw everywhere um and I think you know as I say kind of crime reporting uh, to see them say a woman exposed herself uh that you know that's not the that's not the truth and in journalism the uh you know the the driving um uh goal you know needs to be to tell the truth whereas in the workplace you know being polite can be more um more important than telling the truth in in some situate in some interpersonal situations um but then you know it, it's interesting so one of the things that i get called out on is the fact that i tweeted after i'd lost my job a recommendation to read a blog post so a, a article um called pronouns a rahitnol which i still think is a is a really good thoughtful article which looks at you know the cognitive cost of using this non-intuitive language and how it um you know it, ta it takes it takes people's brains away from the truth to have to translate he to she or male to assigned male at birth and it stops them being able to talk about what they're seeing in front of themselves and so wherever you draw that personal line you are accepting a cost and you're accepting that cost in order to be polite in order to save people's feelings or in order to keep your job and i think people you know i think people can make a choice as to where they draw that line but but at least to know that there's a cost there and why why we're drawing that line in that place in that particular situation um but anyway the you know the fact that i even tweeted this article which sets out an argument for how you should think about this has been taken as being uh you know a terrible thing not by the courts but by you know the court of twitter uh <laughs> as one of the one of the terrible things that i've done um and you know so so this kind of capture of language is all about not allowing us to talk about things rationally and to talk about what are the costs on different groups of people what are the risks institutions have turned themselves into the new spiritual houses of worship and it's an odd thing to witness from let's say in the united states where the civil rights movement invoked certain kinds of legislation by the government that set out to have equal opportunities in employment now we're seeing that that kind of ethos has been turned towards the private sector the private sector which employs people so you abide by the doxa or you're out the door. Why should employment today at all be based on someone's spiritual purity? And I say this as someone who, I'm a, I'm a gay woman. And one thing that 
this entire discussion over the last decade for me has brought out of me is it quieted my inner woke child. I had a bit of wokery to me and it made me much more tolerant of differing views. And I think that our intolerance of different views is the more relevant tolerance today beyond and above homophobia or misogyny, etc. Because what I'm seeing is that we are now being shuttled into one of two doors, sociologically speaking, that of the good citizen who gets up, you know, every day there's a new memo. These are the new pronouns. This is the new group of gender identities. And then tomorrow could be a new list, but we just keep up with it. And we apologize for getting it wrong. We even make a YouTube video for getting it wrong if we have enough followers, right? And then yeah. the other door, which is for the cast out purgatory, any of Dante's inner circles of hell. How is it that we are now dealing with this fallout of a combination of institutional capture of even some of the people on our side who, who are trying to play this middle ground maneuver where we should be meeting people in the middle for something, honestly, in, in my viewpoint, this is not even a belief. It's a, these are facts. Um, when I see a man popping a child out of his penis, I'm very happy to concede I'm wrong. But we know that sexual dimorphism is real, not because it was hypothesized and untested, but because it is something that's put into practice every second that we're talking, someone else is giving birth. And that person giving birth is most definitely not a man. And we know the statistics on who is raped by whom, who is killed by whom, et cetera, et cetera. So how is it that women are once again at the crosshairs of yet another construction, cultural, social, quasi-religious. And how do we deal with it since places like your former employer have become the new houses of worship? Do they have wine in the back office <laughs> for the host, you know, the sacrament? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we have to defend... Um, the rule of law, freedom of speech, pluralism. And those are, you know, those are still the stated values of, um, you know, of my ex-employer. They're still the values of people that I worked with. Um, and, you know, that's what allows us to, to live together. And I think, you know, I think you're right that sex is real is a different kind of belief, you know, we frame it as belief, but it's, but that is reality. At the same time, I think, you know, we know that, um, you know, many aspects of religious belief have no basis in, you know, in the material reality of, of what happens when you die, for example. Um, but people, but people believe different mythologies and, you know, we don't uh, require everybody to, you know, to follow the same, you know, kind of purely scientific view of everything at all times. But where, in the domains where it matters, we do. So, you know, a doctor can have a religious belief, but we expect that doctor to treat us according to science. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's not that we want everyone to always 
talk about things in terms of the material reality of, of sex, but where it matters, that needs to be how policies and laws treat it. Um, and then kind of at a, at a level above that, we need the policies and laws that um, protect people, you know, protect the fairness of institutions to work because, you know, this particular piece of crazy wokeness is not the only one. And, uh, you know, if you can make people say things that aren't true about sex and gender, you can make th people say things that aren't true about all kinds of things. And that, that sort of uh, mechanism of punishing people who don't follow the one true religion can be, you know, used over and over again. So I think, you know, we have to strengthen the understanding of where sex matters, it is sex that matters, and that means science, and then the protection for, for different beliefs. Um, and I think, you know, every, every fundamentally, I believe that we are, you know, apes living on a rock. We are evolved uh, primates who are motivate or we you know we have all kinds of higher motivations but underlying that we evolved from the people who survived from the people who managed to reproduce managed to raise children and have grandchildren and those very sort of basic drives about sex and about status are still really important to what drive men and women to do things and to do things differently so in society you know we have these kind of high-minded institutions that universities are places that advance knowledge and you know train the next generation and that courts are places that uh, uphold the law and give everyone fairness and, and all that is true and that is what those institutions should be doing but at the same time we know that they're peopled by people who you know are trying to get their end away and are trying to look after their own look after their family you know and so then you have all of these checks and balances against sexual harassment against uh you know inappropriate conduct in the workplace um against people uh, you know, against corruption and, and nepotism and so on. But all of those things, corru nepotism, corruption, um, uh, you know, um, sexual behaviour are actually more deeply embedded and hardwired than the fancy stuff about, about justice and knowledge and science. You know, we have to, that's why we it takes so long to learn that stuff. Well, I have to wonder what the drive of a, a society like the London National Society for Women's Suffrage, once founded in 1866 by Millicent Garrett Fawcett, now today called the Fawcett Society. <laughs> How on earth is it? No, but you saw this yesterday, right? Yeah. Where uh, Felicia Willow, the interim CEO of the Fawcett Society, has not only blocked all of us who don't follow her, but basically she's done her own form of call-outs of transphobes. 
what's gone on that the very organization, the most entrenched historical and important organization ostensibly for British women has taken the side of men. In the framework of, because I'm thinking of what you just said about other frameworks for understanding why we are how we are, perhaps biological, but why is it that women are the propounders of this ideology every bit as much as men? And why are they now refusing the very logical pathway of dialogue? This happened with Women's Equality Party as well, from which Heather Brunskill Evans was booted. Why are women being given the boot by other women? Is this another heel in the back of women that we hear about and have heard about since the 1960s? I think it's about, I think it's about resources. I think you know it, institutions there's always a disjunction between what institutions say they're doing you know their mission and their vision and what they're actually doing which is trying to keep the lights on trying to pay the mortgage trying to have a career and that you know you try to build an institution that aligns those two things so that you achieve your higher purpose while you know people are able to live live a good life um and you know, but those two things are always intention because they're not they're not the same thing. And we know that the cost of speaking up is incredibly high, has been made incredibly high. And the benefits of staying silent in terms of being able to attract resources to your organization, being able to move up in a career that um you know, doesn't isn't necessarily always focused on the same mission. So, you know, voluntary sector leaders move from one charity to the next. They're all seen as being part of uh, the great and the good, um, and they're all they all want to be allies together. So, Fawcett Society sees itself as an ally of Stonewall because they're both part of of the charitable sector. Um, and both part of what's seen as being uh, the good and not fighting with Stonewall is part of what keeps them having access to government, to parliament, to money, to funders. And I'm sure that they justify them, that themselves by saying, we're doing other stuff that's important. We're doing stuff about equal pay. We're doing stuff about um, childcare. Uh, women's rights at work we don't want to put all of that good stuff that we're doing at risk because we know that if we speak up on this we're going to get the same punishment that that Myers had and so we keep quiet and we say to ourselves this is for the greater good I think there are lots of women in uh, women and men in organizations so you know big corporations, charities, government institutions, the kind of organizations that are setting rules and norms, who now see that um, they underestimated how dangerous this is and what it's done to their organizations, but they don't know how to get out of it. Um, and then you have the problem that every time you hire, you end up hiring the people who will um, keep quiet so Sam Smethers who was the head of Fawcett previously I spoke to her I went and met her um, I spoke to Fiona McTaggart who's the chair of the board of Fawcett um, 
you know, they, they at least recognized that they needed to engage with me and try and understand um, what was going on, but they didn't have the courage to, uh, to really speak up on it. Although Sam Smethers did, you know, she, she did um, defend Women's Place UK and say that they weren't transphobes. And I, you know, I think the more people are insiders, the more power they have, the more responsibility they have to give cover to those people who are brave enough to say we need to talk rationally about that and you know she did that it was like pulling teeth but she did that but then the next person they hire is going to be less courageous than her because if you're more courageous you wouldn't do that job um, and you see that with stonewall you know nancy kelly came in saying let's be pragmatic let's find the middle ground and then the next thing she was saying was uh trans women should play in women's rugby and you think you know is that the middle ground was contact sport <laughs> you know where, what... well here's my proposal i just think yes. that the people who call themselves trans women i really don't use this as a term but i think men who identify as transgender should just be the reproductive class and give us a break that way they can take on the labor, we save our figure, surrogacy problems, human trafficking problems go down. And by my proposition, the human population would decrease because my theory is that these men would not be able to get pregnant and carry through to have birth. So this is the paradox is, it's all good for us to be polite. Now, how is it that we can resolve what is a, an ideology, a religious belief that has no bearing at all in reality, and not to belittle the people who claim to suffer from gender dysphoria, but I've been speaking with Heather Brunskill Evans recently about well, how this even came to be, because it is no coincidence that gender dysphoria emerged in the atomic age post-World War II in the 1950s, where men had to return home, often amputated, often physically suffering and not complete men. There's a famous Marlon Brando film about this, in fact, where the whole film was about his legs tremoring in his wheelchair. But men were incomplete, coming back, their wives kicked out of the factories, put back in the home front. This is when alcoholism of housewives and volume use of housewives began to skyrocket in the US. And that gender had a place as a social fiction made medical reality. I think we need to start to look at gender dysphoria as a fiction. I think we need to also start to look at the way that we use words like, these are men who identify as transgender. I'll go that far to use their language. But even then, what does that mean? Is it not that maybe we have done the legwork so that you and I can wear 501s out on the street, Levi's, whatever brand, and no one's gonna say, Maya, is that a man's name? You know what I mean? Like they will look at you and see that you're a woman because we all have eyes and I can tell when someone's a man or a woman almost all the time. Like, I don't think I've ever been fooled by someone, including friends of mine. I made a film in Mexico about transvestites on stage. All those men were great, never for a doubt, even Carlos who was very short, never for a doubt did I think he was actually a woman because there are certain markers that even children can see such that when I'm working on a story about this, my daughter comes around my computer She'll say, mommy, that's a man in a dress. And she'll <laughs> giggle, okay? Now, I've reported her. I've reported her to the UN Human Rights Court. I mean, she's up for a trial soon. <laughs> but this is how absurd it is. And if you look at my first piece from 2013, I interviewed a psychiatrist who has consulted with the Tavistock. 
And he said to me that the crazy thing about what's going on is that I can put your hand into warm water, but I cannot make you feel it. I cannot oblige you to feel it as cold. So we are being told as like, you know, Harry Miller tells me that we're living in a culture where my ears are more important, Maya, than your eyes. This seems to me a legal conundrum because I don't think that there's going to be any resolution that will make me happy unless, I'll just speak for myself, unless I can say what I see. Like I should be able to say that's the man in that beautiful dress or not a beautiful dress, right? I mean, have men missed the boat on advocating for their rights to wear blue hair, pink hair, uneven haircuts, makeup, whatever. Or as some of the more radical feminists maintain that a lot, and even Ray Blanchard himself in a recent interview he did with me, that there's a lot of autogynophilia afoot that's not being discussed. And that both can be true, that men need to do the work to wear the dresses, but maybe there also needs to be discussions about, this is not about you or I or any other woman being mean or transphobic, that maybe we have the right to call out the boogeyman of hokum, of fake medical diagnoses. So, so the way I come at this is, I think about it in terms of rights. I'm let. I mean, I think there is there's a whole sphere of knowledge and inquiry about autogynophilia, the psychology of what what makes somebody trans, um, which and and what gender identity is which I kind of put in a black box because we can't differentiate between different people's motivations for doing things. All we can say is what are, I think, what are the rights that society gives you and where, sh and where are your freedoms constrained? And I think this, this whole thing went wrong when the right to to impose on other yeah to, as you say to sort of impose um on other people how they speak and what they're allowed to say but if you if you go back to what the actual rights are so you know rights are universal and trans somebody who identifies as transgender should have the same rights as everybody else and nobody has the right to tell other people how they should refer to them what what is the basis of trans rights and if you go back to the case that that um preceded the gender recognition act in the uk it was the case of a uh trans woman christine goodwin who went to the european court of human rights and said the because the government doesn't allow me to change the sex on my birth certificate, they are um, uh, destroying my, there was obviously the right to marry because at the time there was no same-sex marriage, which has now been resolved. But the other one was Article 8, the right to a private life. So the government is intervening in your private life because, and this was the example that was used, was when Goodwin went to get a mortgage or a bank loan and had to show the birth certificate 
it said male. And Goodwin said, the bank teller has no business knowing that I'm male because it's not necessary for this bank loan. And the European Court of Human Rights agreed with that. That's quite a, you know, that right to not have to tell people your sex when it doesn't matter is quite a trivial right. So for example, if you have a Twitter account and you don't want people to know what sex you are, you, you don't have to say what sex you are on your Twitter account and you can be, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you're transgender, it just means you're tweeting as, you know, whatever, and your sex isn't something that you make public. But if you walk out of your house, your sex is going to be public because as you say, other people have eyes. If you're dealing with the bank, does every single person in the bank that you deal with need to know your sex? No. And so I think that the actual right that sort of then gave birth to this whole rights um, architecture is about the right to privacy, about your private information. So the, the analogy that I make is with pregnancy. When you become pregnant, that's your private information. It's up to you when you tell your partner it's up to you when you tell your parents, it's up to you when you tell your employer. But at a certain point, it becomes obvious and that you can't keep, you can't um, require people to keep that information private when it's, you know, when it's, when it's obvious. But you can say your local council shouldn't be making a list of all the pregnant women and publishing it. There's, there's a thing about your information and what other people can do with it and I think if we rode back to saying that sex is information that is often needed for healthcare, for safeguarding for you know for the census there are all kinds of places where information on your sex is needed and there are some places where it isn't that is the right that transgender people have is to um not have to declare their sex when it's no one else's business. And if we could get back to that, and it, you know, that's not gonna make people happy, but rights are not obliged to make people happy. They're just obliged to make the system fair and to not um, impinge on people's freedoms beyond what is needed to uh, make it fair and safe for others. Um, so, so I think focusing much more on separating out information privacy and then physical privacy if you have a, a service or a space that involves undressing you know any any kind of bodily function then the question of what sex somebody is matters and if somebody has a strong feeling that they don't want other people to know what their sex is or they don't want people to socially acknowledge it then those spaces are not for them. And it's not rocket science to have, you know, unisex privacy, the option of unisex privacy, so that some people, if they don't want to say, I'm a man or a woman, or they don't want other people to question their self-identity as a man or a woman, just don't use communal spaces where other people are undressing, <laughs> because that's not appropriate. And that way, everyone's human right to bodily privacy and information privacy can be respected 
without um you know without impinging on each other but it, it won't make everyone happy but it but it will work I found out when I had a job interview when I was pregnant with my son at the London School of Economics during the interview the committee made it quite clear I was the top candidate skip to the end when they asked me if I would be available yeah. to start teaching on September 1st and I said yes not a problem Around the 26th, I will need to take maybe two days off if it doesn't hit a weekend. And they said, why? And I did this with my hands pointing to my stomach because I was six and a half, seven months pregnant at the time. They didn't notice, perhaps because I was wearing this Japanese type of shirt dress, but whatever. It was black. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it's true what they say about television, but <laughs> they did not notice I was pregnant. And at the point where I pointed at my belly, the committee, entirely female, did this staring at each other. One woman said, but don't you want to stay home with your baby? And I said, oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, I'd like to, but I like eating, too. So and the other ones were like, but it's a lot of work. Suddenly the interview turned into that. Long story short, that's when I found out how equality law functions in the UK and employment tribunals, because I had to go through an employment process where I was forced into mediation. What they said, what would you like from this process? And I said, I would like the job because they had already made it very clear I was going to get the job. Well, they've already offered it to someone else. And I said, hmm, imagine not a pregnant person, but I said, well, that's what I want. So you've asked me what I want. No, but what else can we do? And I said, well, in lieu of that, I would like you to get the LSE to agree to do training about sex-based rights and my right to have a job, even if I would have had to employ someone to take care of my child so I could go there. At the end, the, the employment people came back. What is that organization called? You've done ACAS. That's ACAS, yeah. And, they, yeah. and they came back to me and said, well, we can't actually ask them to do that. You have to make a demand in terms of money. And I yeah. said, <laughs> but I don't want money. I want the job, which is money, but it's much more money than I think they would offer to give yeah. me. So basically I found out what sex is, even if I hadn't known because I already knew. The irony is in your example that you just gave is that when women are pregnant, that we don't have the luxury of hiding our pregnancy. At the end, when I had to get a solicitor, her first thing was, we're going to use this award that the LSE gets every year against them. She rambled off the title of the award. Don't ask me. I don't remember. It was something about top woman employer or top female academic employer. Who knows? And she did. And very quickly, that was resolved. It was resolved pathetically because the economic repayment was less than a month's salary that I would have had had I had a job. When I was going through this and talking to women, women came out of the woodwork to tell me similar stories to mine. So I find it quite paradoxical, Maya, that yours is the case that got you booted, but not the many people, male and female, who openly discriminate against females because we're females. Yeah. And, 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 you know, all of the sexual harassment and, you know, I mean, this came very quickly after me too. People were talking about sexual harassment at work for about five minutes before this came in and, and suddenly we can't say what a man or a woman is. And we've got to the point now that, I mean, everyone walks on eggshells. I get emails from people, even who work in media, comedians, actors, who agree, gay men, in fact, who agree and are afraid to speak out. What's the answer? How can we 
solve the conflict of rights. I personally don't think there's a saving. I do think that the superhero of science needs to fly down and take the crazy people away. And maybe we should create ideological islands, quite literally, in the same way that Australia became the campground for <laughs> Scottish prisoners. <laughs> maybe we can have all the gender ideologists in an island. And I'm being tongue in cheek here, but I do find it appalling that in this day and age, we, we've had 15 months of lockdown. People, including my family in India, are dying. And women are the ones dying because of their inability to move freely, to control their bodies in terms of reproduction around the planet. And this is the hill that multinational corporations are wanting to die on. It's cheap. I think it's cheap, you know, that they can do it and they get a lot of, um, you know, plaudits and they can slap themselves on the back and they don't have to change, you know, things like maternity leave and, uh, you know, thinking about women as, as uh, being able to maintain their career and have family are difficult for employers and expensive and, and you know not just expensive in money terms but they have to think about doing things differently whereas you know this is easy for them and the cost is borne by women who are made to feel uncomfortable and then made to go along with it because uh, because they want to keep their job so you know I think it's it's a way of companies doing something cheaply and easily to then sort of say we're you know we are diversity champions rather than to think about uh, women in the workplace, social class. Are they you know are they hiring people who look like them and went to the same university as them? Uh, you know all, all of those kinds of things which or, you know the, the on ramps to careers which are built for. Uh, a particular narrow sector of society, rebuilding and thinking about how those on-ramps work is much harder than saying, we're, you know, everyone can use whatever toilet they want. Um, that's, why, that's why I think they're doing it. Um, you know, it's great for the people who are in the toilet making business. Yes, they are. They are definitely. I mean, that, that's the thing. All kinds of organizations get on the bandwagon for quite different incentives. And you see the toilet making people are, are just looking at this and saying, well, if we can get everyone to remodel and make everything gender neutral, that's a whole new swathe of business for us. So so why wouldn't they? Mm hmm. Yes, and then you have the, oh, who is that? <laughs> Forgot his name now. I'm thinking Pippa, but he's a man who yes. has a, a twofold male and female photo on his employment page, and he gets awards as a man in a dress, but then he sometimes goes to work as the man. Do you know what I'm talking about? Philip Pips Bunce. That's who I got in trouble for talking about in the first place. <laughs> not with, not with. Bunce. Bunce didn't um, report me, but the, it was talking about Bunce that led to people at my workplace thinking I'd gone too far. Do you ever wake up in the morning and just giggle about this stuff? Because 
it's it's tragic on the one hand, but some of it is so over the top. I'm thinking I do wait for Monty Python to just say, can we use your Twitter feed and just turn it into a script? Yeah. And uh, yes, I, I mean, you have to laugh or you cry, um, but also you have to laugh because, you know, laughter, I mean, comedy and is how you poke fun at the ridiculousness of authority. And, you know, when they come for the comedians, Graham Linehan, you know, they, they it's, it's just another way of shutting down debate. You know, you, you shut down debate in universities where it's serious, you shut down comedy where it's funny. And, you know, the only places left really is, is Twitter where it's antagonistic and where the, um, the algorithms are there to make people angry and to make people come back for more anger. And so then, you know, it's had a benefit of, it has brought the debate out, um, but if the only place that it happens is is Twitter, then it ends up going around in in quite noxious circles. But if we can, yeah, if we can laugh, but also be serious about it, you know, none of this is it's not rocket science. There's and there's much there are much bigger things to solve, but if we make our institutions lie, we break them. Thank you.